We've actually been looking at this section of Scripture here for about five different Sundays, and we're going to progress over time through portions of it, but we've, in a sense, been drawing out the main points and the main ideas that you'll find in chapter 6, and you'll also find reiterated in chapter 7, and to some extent in chapter 8. And, and I believe this morning we'll find some reference, we'll make some reference again to each one of those chapters. What we started with was a need to know something, something that we could ground ourselves in, something that we could, in a sense, not simply know intellectually, but that we could be awakened to in a deep and profound discovery, something that we would know believingly, something that we would know convincingly. And we find it at least beginning to be initiated to us in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. There it says, If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, speaking of Christ's death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, being convinced of this, believingly convicted of this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And so, Christian, know this. Here's where we find ourselves. A Christian is a regenerate being. That is what Jesus called, we've been born again. It's what Paul says, we have become new creations in Jesus Christ. What's new is two things in a sense, and we've discussed this already, but we're going to look at it because this is Reiterated over and over. Last week I said that this passage is just very repetitive. And one of the things you should understand is when the Bible keeps repeating itself, it's because it needs to be repeated. It's something that needs to be ground and put down deep into the bedrock of our souls and our spirits. And here are the primary essential changes and for the believer, for the born-again Christian. And the first one is that the sinful spirit of man that was bound in sin and in communion with this world has died. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you've trusted in Him and you've repented of your sins and turned to Him for life and salvation, you have, that old man has died. It's dead. And the, the claim that sin had upon you has been broken. The essential communion that your old spirit had with the spirits of this dark age has been broken. That's the first thing. You've died. The old man has died. And, and the second thing is this. A new spirit has been raised within you in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you live, but you live a new and totally transformed life. You've been raised in Jesus Christ. In the place of sin, He's raised His spirit up within you. And now you dwell and you live in the inner sanctum, you might say, of your soul in communion, spirit with spirit in communion with the living God. And so Paul tells us we've not received the spirit of this age, but the spirit which is of God. We've entered into this deep abiding communion and relationship with him in the past our old fallen sinful man was living you might say residing in the tendencies and the impulses of the flesh they worked in cooperation with one another in order to entertain and engage the sin of this world and satan who guides and directs and leads and but now what's happened is we no longer are abiding in our flesh we're living in christ our spirits are abiding in Him, and His Spirit abides in us. This transformation has taken place in a wonderful and powerful way. We're in Christ, and Christ is in us. This doesn't mean that we have no encounters with sin, and we have no encounters with Satan. It doesn't mean that we don't have a battle with the spirits of this world. It's actually quite the opposite. These 
old agents of sin and Satan oftentimes were like docile companions of ours that hung out with our spirits as our spirits rested in our flesh. But after we gave our lives to Jesus Christ, that communion and connection with sin and the spirit of this age and the spirit which is in this world, which is Satan himself, was in a sense that relationship was severed and driven from our spirits. And they went from our spirits and they no longer have a binding tie to our spirits and they laid down hard into our flesh. They're still in our flesh. And from our flesh they seek to come against us and they cause and they agitate the impulses of our flesh to wage their war against us, but we're at war against them. And we're at war against those expressions and impulses in our flesh that they bring about. We have been redeemed and we've been regenerated, but our flesh has not yet been redeemed. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8. In fact, when he speaks to his body and refers to his body in Romans chapter 6, we've just read it in verse 6, he speaks to it as the body of sin. And then when he refers to the body again at the end of Romans chapter 7, he speaks to it as a body of death. That's his perspective on his body. It's not something that is necessarily reflecting what has taken place in his spirit and the transformation that's taken place in him. Interesting enough, in chapter 7, he is so radically changed, so wonderfully changed in spirit and relationship with God, so radically departed from the impulse and tie that the the spirit of this age and sin and Satan had tied him into his own flesh that now he finds himself looking almost from a distance at the sin that is still roiling within his body, within his flesh, and that brings him into sin. And now he hates it and he's opposed to it and he's opposed to these eruptions of sin in his flesh, but he speaks as if it's something that's separated from himself. He's changed. He's made new. He's been transformed and he knows it. By the way, when that happened to Paul, I'm sure he had an experience when he was wonderfully saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and the infusion of that life poured into him and he was given a new spirit, a spirit of love that broke in upon him to cause him to love God and love the very people that prior to that he'd been persecuting and to love God's family and God's church and to love God's word and that word that he had memorized under the pharisaical principles of the law all of a sudden came to life under the grace that this life uh, inbreathed life that he had through the spirit of god i think probably paul thought what very many of us think in that moment of regenerative life which is i'll never sin again <laughs> this is so wonderful i've been forgiven these sins have been purged from my life and i've been brought into this vibrant relationship with God and I see the sin that's around me but oh God has changed me so wonderfully God you're good and you've done a good job I can take it from you I've got it now I've got a handle on these things so the confident Christian strides out to face the world and all of a sudden they find out that although sin has departed from the spirit it hasn't departed from their bodies they find out all at once that it still has its own independent physical appetites and attitudes that are driving them back into patterns of behavior that are wrong and sinful. And now they know that although God has totally transformed their spirits, He, he still has a job to do on their bodies. He still has a work to do to mold and shape and give expression to the way that their bodies act and perform that is commensurate or responsive to what he's done to their spirits. The born-again Christian that moment of baking up to see what sin is still in their body might say what Paul sees in Romans 7.13. They see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. 
and they see it still in them. And so in that awareness, they begin to evaluate their own bodies and they might say like Paul, I see that in my flesh there dwells no good thing. This is just a rotting flesh. And then in desperation, because they realize that a battle now is at play, where they're opposed to the very instincts that they have been resting in and residing in in the old man, and now a new man has come in them that is opposed to all those instincts. And so they look at their body and they think, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? They go through a bit of a crisis, which they recognize that not only do they need to be receive this new life from God and be forgiven of their sins and be made right before God, but now they need God to work in their life and to work through their life in order to bring their bodies into obedience. And that's all good. And it's all necessary. God is simply showing us that after changing and transforming our spirits, He still has a work to do with our flesh. And He's going to do it. And ultimately our promise is He's going to completely and totally transform our bodies so that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says one day we're going to have glorified bodies. But even now he's at work. So here's our situation. Sin is no longer in my spirit. I'm a changed man. I'm a new man in Christ. And Jesus lives in me and I live in him. And I don't live in my flesh. I live in Christ. And where Christ lives, that place is a holy place. That's a pure place. But sin is, as we've said, still at play in my flesh. And I become more aware of that than ever. And I hate it. It's not what I want. But too often it's what I find activating my life and my decisions and the things that I do. And so the question is, what can I do? What is the next step when I identify this reality? And what do I do when temptation and sin comes upon my flesh? The answer is given to us here in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. I'm to reckon myself dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ. I'm to do these two things. I'm to be reckoning first, I'm to reckon myself dead to sin. We spoke about this. When Satan and sin comes around to call upon us, because we've been born again, because we recognize that the man and that spirit that they once were in deep communion with no longer exists, we can claim a new relationship to God, but in that relationship we can remove ourselves from any claim they have upon the old man we were. We can basically say, you're coming to the wrong person, the person you're seeking out is dead. He's not here anymore. And I'm a new person, I have a new relationship, and you have no longer any claim upon me. Because I've died to you, and I've died to your impulses, and I've died to your control, and I've died to your bondage. The word there for reckon in the Greek basically means to do the math. It means to add it up, to do the accounting. So we've been talking about that math for the last four or five weeks now. What I want you to do is to be in the situation where you can reckon this. You can add it up. You can be convinced, completely convinced, believingly convinced, embrace it that it's true so that you can reckon, I have died with Christ. That man and that impulse, those claims they have upon me are not right and are not true anymore. It's been broken. And the wonderful thing about this language that is the language of a math, this language of accounting, is that math is a universal language. You can travel all the world and the language is changing. You don't understand it. But the fact is, but 2 plus 2 equals 4 in every single language, in every single place. It's universal. It's a universal truth. It doesn't matter whether you're in the 1st century or whether you're in the 21st century. Do the math. You're dead in Christ. If you put your faith in Christ and you believed in Him, that old man that was 
bound in sin, died with Christ, and you're dead in Christ. Just as surely as Christ has risen from the dead, you're alive in Him. So that's the second one, is we have to reckon ourselves alive to God. Now, when we look at this passage of reckoning ourselves dead indeed into sin and alive to God, and you go and you read the different authors who write about it and comment on it or write their sermons from it, it seems as though they put their attention primarily on the focus of being dead to sin. All those things that we've been severed from and separated from and that we're dead to those things and so we're to deny ourselves any play in those things because we're dead to it. But there's the other corollary. We're alive to God. And that's the great miracle. The great miracle is he not only put to death that old man and that old spirit, but he gave to life a new man that was bound in a wonderful relationship with God. And so I want to just for a moment us to pause here and look at this passage and begin to understand that what's being delineated out for us is a portrait of what it means to be alive to God. And actually Romans 6.14 uses another phrase to give expression to this relationship in which we're alive to God. And it just says that we are now under grace. Instead of having... The law ruling and reigning over our life, we're being ruled and we're reigned over by the gracious outpouring of God himself upon us. We're under grace. We're alive to God. These are really synonymous concepts. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he comes to this passage and speaks about what it means to be alive to God, says that basically what's being addressed here is that we have this completely new relationship where we're no longer under the judgment and wrath of God, but we're in a relationship with God where he's our father and we're his children and we are bound into Him. This also means that we have entree or entrance into His presence and where our life now is embedded into the very presence and life of God and His very presence and life is embedded into us. How wonderful is that? And it also means that as a result, we have opened up to us, he says, this idea that we're alive to God or that we're under grace, the reign of grace, means that what's been opened to us are all the spiritual blessings that God has for us in heavenly places. There is a sense in which, whether you're a believer or not believe, you have access to common graces that are poured out upon all of us. The Bible says that God sends the rain on the just and the unjust, that he provides benefits that all men realize, but there are special and specific and wonderful blessings that God just has for his children, and they're ours, and they're secured for us in heaven, but they rain out from heaven upon us. Wonderful and tremendous blessings, and above everything else, the blessing is this, that God has His attention on us, and He has purposes or plans for us that He's going to fulfill. That everything God gives us, every blessing God pours out upon us, is purposed to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. It's purposed to open up our beings so that our life can be a fount through which He pours His own life into us and out of us so that he fulfills the design that he made us for, which is to be a people who are exalted in the worship of God and in the radiating reflection of all of his being. So there are blessings all mine with 10,000 beside that are mine because I'm alive to God. They're mine and yours if you've given your life to Jesus Christ because you are under grace. The law had no ability to bring any of those blessings to you. The law only revealed to you how far you fell short of the glory of God. It only revealed to you your failure and your brokenness and your sin. It only revealed to you the great jeopardy that you were in. It only became the basis of the judgment that was upon you. Grace answered all the claims of the law against you, fulfilled all the claims of the law against you, 
And grace opened up the pathway through which God pours out His blessings through Jesus Christ upon you. You're alive in God. You have a relationship with Him. You're under the reign of grace. So let's look, look at verse 12 here of Romans chapter 6. Let's think of this in terms of just not what we're being asked not to do, but what we're being introduced to that is now ours. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. In our old man, in our old nature, we were ruled by sin. And sin played its rule out in our fleshly bodies. Now we're being told that there's a new impulse that has been brought to bear upon our bodies. And that impulse is the new life that we have with God. It's, it's an impulse driven by His own gracious life within us, calling us to Himself so that within our bodies He may give expression to the reign of His life and His goodness and His holiness and His righteousness. So don't let sin reign anymore. Let God reign. Let His life, let the joy of the Lord reign in your body. Let the love for the Lord reign in your body. Let His presence and His being and His blessings and the impulse of righteousness and goodness be the impulse that begins to be the dominating factor on your body. In verse 13, it says, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness as sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I think the very first thing I see here and recognize here is that whether you know it or not, you don't just accidentally fall into sin. There's always some point in time under temptation in which you present yourself to that action. You present yourself to that thing. That's what the old man did all the time. The old man delivered you up and yielded you up to all those impulses. But now, now through the Spirit of God dwelling within you, and because you're a new man in Christ, there's a new pattern that's to take place in your life, which now you, in the face of temptation, in the face of trials, you don't do that. You present yourself to God in righteousness. There's something volitional in all of our obedience. Right? There's something in our reckoning in which we yield to what God is saying to us. Take a man who has had temptations to come upon him. Let's say he, he's in his home, his children outside playing, and on the television that he's watching at this moment, and all of a sudden as he's flipping the channels, something scintillating comes in to attract his, faith, his flesh, some image, some scene that is a carnal scene, and He's tempted to look at it, but then he thinks, well, you know, my kids and my wife are running through the house here. I better not do it. So he decides not to at that moment present himself to that thing. It's there, but he puts it away. And then maybe there's another occasion in which, you know, they're outside the house and he's a little bit more secure and he can do these things. The same opportunity provides himself to himself. But then he thinks, well, no, I don't want to. There's a judgment that will come upon my life, and I don't want to face that judgment, and so I'm not going to do it. Well, that's a, that's a good response as well. Let's imagine the man is actually in a hotel room somewhere, and he's got all the access to that right now, and there's nobody he's going to see, and nobody's that's going to know, and, and he's tempted again by those things. But the thought comes to him differently. No, I'm, I'm a new man in Jesus Christ. He's raised a new spirit within me, and although my flesh has an impulse to those things, it's not what I want. It's not what the spirit of the new man that's in me in commune with God wants. Oh God, how could I? I will not present myself. You see the difference here? The distinction 
begins to empower us in the face of these things. I present myself and my members as instruments of righteousness unto God. When the old nature we brought our bodies forth to do what was unrighteous in our new natures in Christ, we're to present or bring our bodies forth to carry out righteous acts. The impulse of sin is so great that Paul will go on to say that in the past he was a slave to sin and he was a slave to death and as a result he was actually independent and free from doing the righteous thing. That was the dominating force of his life. Verse 20, look what it says in verse 20. He says here in 6 verse 20, When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Slave had so bound you that the only thing you were independent from was an ability to do anything righteous. But being made alive to God, all of that has changed. The grace of salvation is a grace that frees us from sin and death and from unrighteousness. It's a grace that's so overwhelming and so powerful that Paul says it's as if instead of being slaves to sin, we become slaves of righteousness. It has a force upon us that enslaves us, graciously enslaves us to life, and righteousness, eternal life. So verse 22, he says this, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit in holiness, the end which is everlasting life. And so then you read verse 23, which we quote oftentimes, but now you read it in context. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to understand something. But that gift is not a free ticket to heaven. You're forgiven, you're going to heaven, just do whatever you want and live your life the way you want because you've got on board the grace train and you're going to get to heaven one day. No, the grace is this active, powerful thing that you've received that all of its impulses are impulses of eternal life. It's impulses of the life of God living in you. They're impulses so powerful and so overwhelming that you become a slave of God. You become a slave of righteousness. And it's driving you and compelling you in a way that's just the opposite of how you were compelled before. That's what's taking place. That's what it means to be alive to God. That's what it means to be under grace. It's under the powerful impulses of that life. The law only brought you into jeopardy it only laid upon you demands that you were powerless to fulfill when you were living in your flesh. But grace brings you the power, the properties of God coming upon you so that you can live in a totally different way. And so reckon yourselves dead to sin, yes, but alive to God. Reckon yourselves alive to God, dead to the reign of sin in your life and alive to the reign of grace free from the bondage of sin, and now enslaved by that grace and bound unto a life and pattern of righteousness that God would carry out in your life. Can you be convinced of that? Can you be convinced of that? That that's what God does when He saves you. When He gives you His new life. That He actually changes you, oh, I wish I wasn't the way I was. I wish I didn't have the temperament I was. I wish I didn't have all the impulses I was. They're just leading me around by my nose. Well, no, it doesn't have to be that anymore. That's what happens when you were in the old man, just living and abiding and resting in your flesh, but you're a new man in Christ. So something has changed. Something has wonderfully changed. New impulses, a new design, a new rain of grace pouring out through you because God is now living in you and you're living in Him. Let's make five summations of this. 
We'll just follow them in order. But the first summation is this. And each one of these is like a little bit of an application. If this is true, if I know that and am convincingly true that this is the reality of my life, here's the first thing. Then you are not under condemnation because of the sins that take place in your flesh. You're not under condemnation because of the sins that take place in your flesh. You are righteous before God because you're covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you are filled with that righteousness and it is your generating power and your spirit is right with him. And so you're not under condemnation. So Paul, even as he looked at this wrestling that takes place where sin is manifesting itself in his flesh, he comes to this summation in Romans 7 and verse 25 and through verse 8, 1. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, and by the way, when he speaks of his mind here, he's speaking of that new man who has the mind of Christ. He's speaking of the regenerate man. He's not talking about his brain matter. With my mind, I myself serve the law of God, the principle of God's law and God's truth and God's desire for me. But with the flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, now he writes, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I've been separated from those things. And although I see it, it's almost like, remember I said he looks at it almost as if it's at a distance He's not under condemnation for those things. He's free of it. Here's the second thing. You've been separated from the working of sin in your life. You've actually been separated from the working principle. You view it as apart from your essential nature. We have this problem, I think, with our children sometimes. Our children do all kinds of things they shouldn't do, and we, we begin to convince our children that they're just naughty. And they might have that identity. They're just a naughty little kid. But here's what God has come No, it's it's not the essential element of our nature. We approach even this temptation and the sin that comes upon us with a sense of personal separation from it, personal standing away from it. It's not a part of us. That is, it's not a part of our essential spirit that we've been made in Jesus Christ. It's removed from us, and now it's just in our flesh. Romans seven seventeen. Paul says it this way. But now it's no longer I who do it but sin who dwells in me. And he's created a sense of separation from these things. Verse 3, now we approach sin and temptation differently. Paul's not saying these things to make excuses for himself. He's not creating some kind of dichotomy that says, well, because I've got a new spirit, I can live any way I want to because these two don't meet. Paul's separating them so he can now address it as God would have him address it. So now we approach sin and temptation differently. We approach it with a informed self-assertion. In other words, we approach it as something that we assert ourselves against and we come against. When sin comes upon us and when temptation comes upon us and it's alluring us into us, we've said this, we assert us, we say, I've died to you. It's not me. It's not a part of me. I assert myself against it. That's what Paul says at the very beginning. The very thing that began this whole conversation that Paul has is in Romans 6, 2, where people said, you're teaching this grace, and as a result, you're opening up this pathway. Why don't you just say, let's sin that grace may abound? And Paul's answer in Romans 6, 2 is, how can we, how can we who have died to sin continue any longer living in it? Well, Paul's asserting himself. No, this is totally contrary to what we've made in Christ. He's asserting himself against it. And so there has to be in our minds, there has to be room for a little bit of this self-assertion where we say we are dead to that. How can we continue in it? And we speak against it with that sense of authority and faith. 
It's what's found in Galatians 2.20. You should know this passage of Scripture. Here's one that you should memorize. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And right there, Paul is asserting himself within just the right context. It's the context of Christ's own death for him and Christ's own resurrection for him. It's the context of Christ's exchanged life given to him. And in that context, he speaks of himself seven times. And one verse, I, me. How can we? I have been crucified with Christ. Tozer, in one of his essays, writes about a missionary that he knew that was such a humble missionary that he didn't want to share any of the adventures that he had on the field and any of the things that he did by referring to himself directly. So he would say, you know, one can remember when one... Tozer pulled him aside at one point in time and said, you know, one can remember when in China when one saw... Tozer said, privately teased him and said, if he had written the 23rd Psalm, he'd said, the Lord is one shepherd, one shall not want. He maketh one lie down by green pastures. But if you read the 23rd Psalm, it's, the Lord does this for me, the Lord does this for me, the Lord does this for me. And we claim it and we live in it. And there is a legitimate point at which you may speak of yourself. It's when you're before the temptation that would come and claim you and the sin and the old sin that would come and lay claim upon the old self and the old person you were and the unregenerate man you were and the sinful nature you once had and temptation comes upon your flesh and it roils within your flesh and now you're supposed to speak by faith in Christ and by faith in His death and by faith in His life, His life in you and you're supposed to say, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, I'm dead to you. How can we... How can I live any longer in that? From this standpoint, you begin to claim the prerogatives of the new life and you begin to bring under the Spirit's control the actions of your flesh. You're a new person in Christ. Here you stand your ground and it's high ground that you're in. It's a winning ground that you're in. I think there are some repetitive sins that come in people's lives and they begin to dominate their lives. And they begin to see that similar temptation, that pattern comes against them. And they kind of see it like an old grizzly bear that's coming down a hill and it's about ready to grab them and maul them. And they just go into a fetal position. But the reality is, if you've been born again, it's not coming downhill upon you. You're on the high ground. You've been granted authority to address it through Jesus Christ and you can. How can we? And so you begin to address these things. Here's a fourth thing, just by way of application. You have new expectations of what God is going to do for you. You have new expectations of what God is going to do for you. Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Here's that is. I expect if I present to God my very life and being in the midst of this trial, that He is going to play out His life, His holy life, so that my life becomes an instrument of the expressions of His righteousness. God, here, play out your design, your rule, your pattern in my life. I expect it now for you to make, in a sense, your glorious music out of my life, your righteous expressions in the new creation I am in Christ. It's in your hands. So my expectations change. Romans 8.11. Let's look at that verse. Romans 8.11. 
But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Huh? I expect that as I present my body to him, my body, this thing that has been betraying me, if I by the take this new man I am, present that body to him, that God is going to infuse life into this dying body, this very thing that's called the body of death, this very thing that's called the body of sin, that God will take this mortal body and God will begin to infuse into it by his own spirit who dwells within me, transforming power to conform my body, even the expressions of body to give glory to God. God who has changed you on the inside by giving you a new spirit and giving you new and eternal life is ready to work to begin bringing changes to the outside to pour that vital life into your sin-sick, dying, mortal flesh. And I'm never going to be rid of sin entirely until this body is glorified and hallelujah, one day it will. But even now, as I'm getting older, can I say this? I can get better. As I'm getting older, I can occupy this body under greater and greater self-control. As I get older, the Spirit of God can express Himself and can identify where I'm just moving in fleshly impulses and show me how He wants to replace it with His own divine life. And I say, God, do it. Here it is for that purpose. Do it for that purpose. And I know the joy of this, and I know the promise of this, and the hope of this. And I thank Him for it. And I don't come to this place because I said, God, I can take it from here. <laughs> because over time, I've just discovered how weak this body is unless he holds it and I present it to him and yield it to him so that it may become an instrument of his righteousness. So expect the Spirit to work on your body more and more to conform you into the image of Christ and recognize his ability to do that will be following the point in time when you look at your body and say, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death. You're not leaning on your body, you're leaning on the spirits. You're leaning on God to do something in you and through to you that you can't make happen on your own. But there has been given to you full provision to defeat the impulses of your flesh. So again, when sin and temptation come upon you, don't panic. Recognize what you are in Christ. Look at that impulse as something separate from you. And expect as you present yourself to God that he's going to do something totally different than what the pattern has been in the past. So this is the fifth one. As we reckon in this way, God empowers our actions against sin. Again, Romans 8.13. If we live according to the flesh, you'll die. If you follow that pattern, it's yielding to your flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. There is this aggressive action that God is ready in His Spirit along with your yielded spirit to take against the impulses of your flesh. He's, he's kind of ready to start putting it to death, to putting it aside. You think about this for a moment. When the Lord Jesus died on the cross, it was not a passive act. It was a powerful act. The Lord Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one has the power to take my life from me. I lay it down of my own cord. I have the power to lay it down. And if I lay it down, I have the 
power to take it up against. Do you know what that means? When Jesus died on the cross, He was exerting His power over the flesh. He was exerting His power. That same power, that Savior who died for us on the cross, is ready by His same Spirit to exert that power over our bodies. And then in that same resurrection power to give it to us over our bodies. And we're to live in that sense of powerful, appointed action as we face the impulses of our flesh. Here's another passage for you. It's Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. There Lord Jesus is speaking in Matthew 11, verse 12, and He says this, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. I just want to give you a different rendering that is thoroughly consistent with the Greek here. It's this. Until now, the kingdom of heaven comes forth by force or power, and the forceful and the powerful take it by force. Starting with John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus Christ, a battle to bring about and manifest the kingdom of God and see it sweep over lives and sweep over our own flesh began. And Christ's power is still at work in our lives. Christ's power is still at work to bring out and manifest His kingdom life to us, the reign of His grace to us, and it comes to us with force and with power and violent responsiveness to the impulses of sin in our flesh. So take action. Be bold. Make bold strokes. Be vehement against the impulses of sin in your life. It doesn't belong in me anymore. And act against it. You don't have to be on the run. Sin doesn't have to come upon you in such a way that you run with your tail between your legs and feel that you are only susceptible and you're going to go down. It's a lie of the enemy of our souls that he has us in an advantageous position. No, we express confidence that God is dwelling within us and he's living within us and Jesus Christ has exhibited his power in his death and in his resurrection and that power is ours because he's brought to death the old man we were and he's given to life a new man. That's to, by their life with God, reigning under grace, bring that reign to express itself in our very bodies. So then God gives us a province in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ. Or Paul brings it to this conclusion in Romans 16.20, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's kind of an aggressive life to live then. It's not a pathetic and sad and just trying to work it out. There's this authority that God has given us because all of this is true. We, we've now no longer in our flesh. We've broken from our flesh and we've gone to separate corners and a fight has begun. But it's a fight that we're going to win. We will win as we yield to Him. We had a wonderful example at the very end of our scripture reading this morning of uh, Samuel and Agag. A little dramatic, I think, as we read it. But understanding the Bible typically, I understand that Agag represents the flesh. And Samuel represents the man who, through the Spirit, puts to death the deeds of the flesh. He hacked them to pieces. It is our prerogative to live in that power and that might. And we praise God for that. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we confess the weakness of our flesh. We confess our sins. We confess our fallenness. We have no hope in ourselves. We're not thanking you simply for giving us eternal life and taking it from there. 
we recognize unless we are vitally connected in relationship with you, and unless we are living in the reckoning and the yieldedness and the event state of that relationship, we will succumb to the impulses of the flesh again and again. But oh, what a wonderful perspective you've given us. And oh, what high ground you've put us on. And oh, what life is ours in the Spirit. And oh, what an answer to the very things the law could never give to us. And all the full commitment to follow the law, we just found ourselves sinning again and again. And never were able to make ourselves righteous. And we were never to bring ourselves into victory by the law but oh, the grace of living with you and being in you and you being in us. Oh, the grace of coming to every action and activity and making a presentation to you of our bodies, our very being, to glorify and honor you. We thank you, O oh God, and we praise you that you allow us to see the places where we still are satisfied to live our lives out in the impulse and power of our flesh. And eventually you show us where that fails and it falls through. How good you are, God, to show us these things, not to bring us under condemnation, but to bring us to claim our position in Christ, to live in your victory, to progress forward in righteousness, to allow you to continue to sanctify us, make us holy like your son. We thank you and praise you for that. It is our confidence. And I pray for young men and young women here today. I pray to God there would not be a false confidence in themselves, but there would be an overwhelming confidence in what the Spirit would do through them as they live and surrender to Him. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.